When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies. I am Jean Lee from the University of Arizona. Today we're joined by Dr. John Morado and his new book, Japanese Philosophy in the Making, Volume 2. This book was published by Chisokuto Publications this year. The first volume was published in 2017 and the third volume is scheduled to come out soon. Dr. Murata is a professor of Japanese philosophy at the University of North Florida. This volume is a collection of essays by Dr. Murata on Japanese philosophy in the early 20th century, with a particular focus on three important figures, uh, Watsuji Tetsuro, Tanabe Hajime, and Kukishuzo. These essays also reflect on how these intellectuals' ideas responded to the search of modernity around this time in Japan. So welcome, Dr. Morado. Thank you so much for joining us today on the New Books Network. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here and have this uh, conversation. And um, I uh, I love the New Books Network and the way that it is really in, a great venue for introducing academic work, uh, in this case, on Japan. Uh, thank you so much for your support of our network. So you have written a lot on Japanese philosophy. What specific aspects do you focus on and why do these aspects interest you? Yes, well, um, there, are, there are a lot of uh, different aspects that I have focused on. And so um, let me just mention three to, to begin with. Uh, first of all is... Um, the language of the philosophers, in particular, I mean the terminology, the, the concepts that they use. Um, and often those concepts are, are a synthesis of, of adapted European concepts and, uh, and East Asian concepts. And then they're often their own creations, their own neologisms. So um, I'm, I've been very interested in the way that specific languages, in this case Japanese, uh, shape the 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 issues that philosophers discuss, um, and uh, maybe I could just give an, an example of of that. So um, in in uh, when when philosophy as a discipline was first introduced into J- Japan, basically starting the eighteen seventies, there were some times earlier than that, starting the the fifth. 1550s, when say Jesuits would come to Japan and, and teach philosophy in their own uh, institutes and academies, but that's basically um, limited, extremely limited. So the, the huge influx of of uh, contemporary philosophical language came starting say the 1870s, and. Uh, and and so I was very fascinated by the huge, we could call it the huge trove of of nouns of new of new compounds in Chinese characters that were introduced. Bill Lafleur once said that what what the Japanese brought back from Europe were thousands and thousands of nouns, typical words such as the word for philosophy, tetsugaku which are new to the, the Japanese language. And um, there, and, and we 
tend to forget about this today. Uh, even people teaching, learning uh, philosophy in Japan tend to forget how new some of these words and, and their concepts are. So, um, for example, uh, um, there's an, the old word, or actually a new word for, for uh, individual, kojin. Okay, now this word, I don't know exactly how old this compound is, consisting of two Chinese characters, two sinograms. Um, but this kojin was used to translate the, the English word individual or its European counterparts, right? Um, but it's a very interesting kind of compound because the ko of kojin actually is a counter. So it is a, a word which lets us select or pick out a member of a group, a member of a group. Um, and the word individual that was being translated in the, in the European languages rather referred to something that was totally unique something that could stand alone, something that was more or less self-sufficient. So um, today, of course, the word kojin in Japanese can, can mean that as well. But originally, the, the intellectuals in starting this 1870s uh, struggled with words like individual to try to convey as best they could some of the European ideas. So this this is a, an example of um, say how new new words entered the Japanese language and really revolutionized their thinking in a way that we today uh, tend to forget about. It, it becomes invisible with the with the usual uh, use of of language today. So that's just one example of um, say the way that a specific language has uh, been altered to let people see in a, in a new way and think in a new way and, and behave in a new way. The, uh, the emphasis on individuality became, has become, uh, in some people's minds, quite extreme in Japan. So that, for example, um, the last time I lived in Japan, uh, the, the TV uh, advertisements were talking about things like my car, my car, or my this, or my that. Uh, again, focusing on us as as standing alone individuals. So that's just one example of um, one of the aspects that I've been interested in. I said that there were three. So another one is um, what we could call the internal logic of uh, the philosophers I've been studying. Uh, very rarely do they think and write in a kind of what we could call straight line fashion. So one has to one has to uh, be able to to go along with uh, for maybe pages before one understands actually what is going on, what is being said. Of course, this occurs in in philosophy in the English language as well. But um, I, I would say for uh, people coming from the outside to the Japanese language, it, it's, uh, it, it takes quite a bit of, of um, rethinking of, of effort. So um, how, how philosophers think differently in, because they are thinking in a different language. In the case of Japan, though, we have to remember that this different language is already a it's a it's a kind of multicultural language because philosophical language in Japan was shaped by European uh, concepts uh, for the past 150 years. Um, and then this is something perhaps we could get back to later. But a third aspect I've been interested in is uh, intrigued with really is the connection between some of these philosophers um, and uh, Zen Buddhism and also other forms of, of Buddhism. So that's a big topic in itself and perhaps we could refer, re return to that later. 
Yes, I definitely want to uh, revisit this uh, topic later. Um, the current uh, dissertation chapter that I'm re uh, writing tries to uh, bring up this question, and uh, it's been quite difficult. But um, to to go to the first book uh, of this series, which was published in 2017, um, so that entire volume is dedicated to this philosopher called Nishida Kitano. Uh, so you provided some translations of his works and you provided some uh, interpretations and um, context of these writings. Who is this person and why is he so important in Japanese philosophy? What are some of his most important ideas? Right. So Nishida Kitaro, was, uh, he lived from 1870 to 1945. And uh, he became known uh, as a Zen philosopher, which I find is only one way to, to depict him. But it happens to be the way that uh, I that first in, intrigued me as well. So Nishida is by far the most important and the most famous 20th century philosopher in, in Japan. It's even been said uh, by um, a more contemporary philosopher that uh, philosophy in Japan has go, necessarily goes through and perhaps succeeds or goes out of or rejects Nishida, but it doesn't it doesn't get by with, without him. So um, let me tell the story actually of how I first became interested in Nishida and in Japanese philosophy in, in general. Uh, this is not what I was studying in graduate school. Uh, I was studying in Munich, Germany, and I was studying German philosophy and, and uh, what's called hermeneutics, the theories of interpretation and understanding. And I was studying um, mainly contemporary figures like Martin Heidegger, uh, who, who also was influenced very deeply by Chinese and Japanese thinkers. But um, so I was, uh, you know, I had my head deeply into these texts and conversations about them. And then some American junior year abroad students came to Munich. And they said, uh, oh, you should read D.T. Suzuki about Zen Buddhism. And you should read uh, Eugen Herigel's book, Zen in the Way of Archery. And read the poet Basho and his haiku. These, these were totally new things to me. I had little, if any, contact with with Zen Buddhism or any of this matter, which uh, all of our all of our listeners today will be familiar with, and and I realize, of course, that um, people like D.T. Suzuki and Eugen Herigel have become uh, the objects of a rather harsh criticism, and since uh, those days. But it's it's ironic that. So many of us did first enter into Japanese studies through figures like this, the, the great popularizers. So um, D.T. Suzuki wrote a preface to the major work, the most famous work of Nishida Kitaro. Uh, and in that preface, D.T. Suzuki identifies Nishida as the Zen philosopher par excellence. Um, he's so much more than that, but he is that also because of his lifelong experience. Uh, he started out um, studying actually European philosopher when he was in high school, when he was learning to read uh, English and, and German. And many of his uh, entries in his diary actually are written in German. And uh, so he was becoming aware, as were students in the higher schools all over Japan, of um, European ideas. Uh, it was a very revolutionary time. Um, shortly after that, D.T. Suzuki got, or actually it was uh, their mathematics teacher at the fourth higher school in Ishikawa-ken, uh, who got 
Suzuki and Nishida both interested in Zen Buddhism. And so they both began to practice uh, in monasteries around uh, Kamakura um, in their early 20s. And Nishida did this for uh, about a, a decade. And so because I was became first interested in these alternative views of Buddhism, and especially Zen, I looked naturally to a Zen philosopher, and that's where Nishida came in, into the picture. Um, so he is, uh, he's indispensable if, if, you, if you look at philosophy in, in Japan. He himself is what I think of as a kind of intercultural philosopher because so, he, he draws so much from European traditions and he, he turns them around and, and, and he comes up with uh, new and startling innovative ideas uh, himself, which let people understand not only Western philosophy differently, but but also East Asian philosophies in Zen Buddhism differently. Um, I could give some examples. So Nishida's most famous idea is actually a, a, a concept that he borrows from the Europeans and from the, the American William James. And that's this idea of pure experience. It's the most famous one in Nishida. And do you know it's also the most short-lived idea in his philosophy itself? Uh, but but it, it caught on. So, what is this? What exactly is this pure experience? Um, an example. Uh, this morning here it was it was really quite cold, and uh, stepping outside, um, the the cold was all over my skin, and. And uh, at the same time, it was very sunny, and I could see the yellow leaves glistening all all around. And and uh, and then I began to reflect. Philosophers have a terrible habit of reflecting on everything, but I began to reflect on this. And of course, then I think such things as, "Oh, I was cold, and I saw the yellow leaves in." On the ground, pure experience is that that uh, momentary phase before we split our experience into somebody who's experiencing the subject and something outside that is being experienced, the object. So Nishida called that pure experience, using this expression he borrowed actually. And uh, and so he saw that as a basis for understanding um, everything in the in the world, and he he modified that idea. He turned it around and changed it and changed the language and came up with new concepts. Uh, but but his beginning, at least, is is um, what at that time was called pure experience. Uh, later on, um, I'm just going to pick out a, a couple of other innovations that, that Nishida made. Um, pure experience was really not an innovation, uh, and it, it shouldn't, it shouldn't have been. It, it should, it should name something which is accessible to anybody. You don't have to have a philosopher to come out and tell you that, um, experience has as uh, these initial phases. Um, but a more innovative concept he came up with is uh, has a technical term. It's a little bit difficult, but in, in Japanese, it's koitekichokkan. And uh, this is translated, chokkan um, is intuition, and koi, of course, is action. So, Actional intuition or inactive intuition or performative intuition. Now, this sounds very hard to grasp, but the idea is simple. 
the idea is something about how we think with our bodies, how we think uh, through, how we see through bodily action with things, through interactions with other people and with things. So again, instead of um, a, a usual conception that tells us um, we we humans have minds which uh, open us to objects in the world. Nishida's conception was that first we are engaged with things in the world through our activities, through our actions, and those help us see, those let us see what is going on. So it's, it's, it's embodied from the very beginning. Uh, and this again is a, for Nishida, a, uh, an origin of, of knowledge, of scientific knowledge, of social knowledge. Um, and it's very different because it's an engaged knowledge, which is, uh, not, it doesn't, um, it doesn't buy into the ideals that knowledge is supposed to be objective and disinterested and pre and, and disengaged from from our own experiences. So uh, today, what Nishida was talking about in the past uh, 20, 30 years has been developed by psychologists and and uh, other philosophers. Some don't know the name Nishida at all. And it's called the theory of inaction, E-N-A-C-T-I-O-N. So inaction is a theory that uh, first, um, comes up, I think, in Nishida's writing. And uh, let's see. Well, let's leave it at that, and and we'll see what uh, what else we can say later about Nishida. That's absolutely fascinating. And I mean, well, when I first read about it, it was a bit hard to comprehend. But um, I guess um, we also need to talk about the the historical context or the intellectual context of this time when, as you mentioned, um, Japanese philosophers were heavily influenced by European philosophy. So why, um, why were they so drawn to European philosophy at this time? Why did aspects of, say, uh, philosophers like Heidegger why did it resonate with Japanese intellectuals so much around this time? Yes. Um, you know, in, in a way, it's still the case that uh, Jap philosophers in Japan, academic philosophers in the universities, are uh, almost totally engrossed with Greco-European philosophies. In Japanese philosophy departments, um, almost all of the philosophy, almost all of the tetsugaku that is taught, that is uh, learned by the students, is what we call, in general, Western philosophy. Um, in the uh, in the eighteen eighties, um, say after Imperial Tokyo University was established. Uh, Japanese, well, first of all, Chinese and Indian philosophers, philosophies um, were kind of recognized on the fringes as forms of tetsugaku, forms of, te, of philosophy, but they were eventually banished from the philosophy departments, from the philosophy se seminars, uh, from what they called Junsei Tetsugaku, pure philosophy, which was solely Greco-European philosophy. Um, so that was, I guess, one way that uh, the academics had of handling this immense amount of material that was uh, being imported into Japan since, it's, uh, since Japan's uh, reopened much more to the West after the Meiji Restoration. Um, and so there were, um, in very general terms, a couple of features, I think, that uh, were important. First, um, there's what I think of as a kind of 
shock of the new that came with all of the uh, Western imports into Japan starting the 1870s. Not only material objects, of course, and and um, technological things uh, such as locomotives, but ideas, these ideas that were conveyed by the thousands of nouns that the Japanese were Im importing. So the shock of, of the new uh, came in the form of concepts such as um, the the individual or uh, human rights or um, or even uh, to a certain extent uh, a way to conceptualize things such as as pure experience. So there's the shock of the new, and the shock of the new is also occurring in an age of colonization, colonization. And so Japan, um, politically, socially, is uh, confronting uh, European empires and American empires uh, across the globe. And um, they are contending with uh, defining themselves over against the European powers and and also, to a certain extent, protecting themselves um, from European colonization. And this is the, the part of the background of um, of the of the uh, your, of the particular intellectuals who are also becoming intrigued with with the West. So, starting, there were some who began to teach European philosophy in the Japanese universities, the, the new institutions in the 1890s. Uh, but by the 1920s, there were dozens of Japanese intellectuals um, studying in France, in Germany, in the Netherlands. And uh, they, they again were intrigued by uh, the Western reaction to them and their their kind of shock of, of the new of being exposed to all of these novel ideas. So uh, by this time, I think I've forgotten what your original question was. But, um, but that's, that, uh, that explains um, why, uh, at least maybe partially, the reasons why Japanese philosophers were so drawn to Western philosophy at this time. And I guess we can uh, focus on the three figures that your volume two uh, really discusses. So uh, we have uh, Watsuji Tetsuro, Tanabe Hajime, and uh, Kuki Shuzo, who were, all three of them kind of uh, were influenced by European philosophy. And then they added, um, I guess you can call it a Japanese characteristic to their philosophy. They explore about ethics, human will, and relationships between human and nature. So what kind of similarities do you find in their arguments or their philosophical ideas? Mm -hmm. The first thing to, to notice is that um, they were, of course, schooled at first in Japan, but they all ended up in, in Europe in the 1920s, uh, all, all three of them. And I think their times over overlapped. I don't know that they had much co contact among themselves. Um, but uh, Kuki was one of the, the first. Um, Kuki was born in, I think, 1888, perhaps. Um, Watsuji in 1889. And uh, Tanabe was born, I believe, in 18. 1875. So he was uh, he was um, a, a bit ahead of them, uh, and they all uh, studied um, with Heidegger. Uh, they had contact with uh, some older, more established figures at the time in German universities, such as Heinrich Rickert, who was trying to to bring together um, uh, uh, social ways of knowing with uh, more philosophical, uh, sci 
same empirical scientific ways of knowing. And uh, they had con these three had contact with Rickert, um, and also with uh, um, the the towering figure of Edmund Husserl, who is a uh, founder of phenomenology. And so um, they, there are even records of letters written, uh, say, between Tanabe and Husserl, or Tanabe and, and, and the younger Heidegger. So they have this common font of, of sources, these three do. And yet uh, they go back to Japan. They start teaching um, what Heidegger was doing, what Husserl was doing for the first time. Uh, and they also are creative writers in themselves and develop over, over several decades uh, their own philosophies. Um, Kuki unfortunately died quite young. I think it was in, I don't remember, 1944, something like that. He had died, but he is uh, somebody who, who, who was in, in Europe as a Japanese intellectual, and he was in, in uh, Germany and in, in France um, as a very sophisticated uh, cosmopolitan person. And yet in the eyes of, in the jaundiced eyes of many, uh, many of those he, he met at the universities, he was somebody of the yellow race. And that, I'm sure, had a very deep um, uh, effect on, on his life. And so he, he had to somehow personally grapple with the way that um, some humans uh, treat other, others in a very discriminatory fashion, and yet we can we should and we can all uh, develop together. And so what, what Cookie is somebody who, um, who became fascinated with uh, the notion of contingency or happenstance or guzen, guzen say, um, things that just happen as they do with no adequate explanation no way to pin down the causes of why something happens as it does. And he actually wrote the most systematic work on contingency in any language, in any philosophy. Uh, he also was a person who learned to read Latin and Greek. While he wrote in French, he could write in German, and of course his, his uh, native uh, Japanese so, by the way, there's a very interesting story about how he served as a kind of conduit for teaching Europeans about one another. When he was in Paris in the 1920s, he hired, so the story goes, Jean-Paul Sartre, who was much younger, as a tutor uh, in language and in and to, to tell him what, about what was going on in French philosophy. Now, Kuki had already been in Germany and studied with Heidegger. And so the story goes that Kuki introduced Heidegger's philosophy to Sartre. Uh, and this, is, this was also revolutionary in itself. And so this was just something that happened to happen. And it's an example of the contingency the happenstance, the, the, uh, in German it's called the Zufall, um, of, of, uh, of, that became such a prominent theme in, in his, his own philosophy. Um, so he eventually, um, tried to find a, an ethical turn, an ethical relevance to his philosophy of contingency. The way it works is this: ethics is uh, ethics is interested in um, in behavior that we share in in common. Ethics isn't just about how I behave by myself, but how 
I behave uh, in common with other people. So ethics is about, for example, how moral codes, moral regulations, ethical rules are formed and, and developed, and whether there are more or less universal principles uh, of behavior which should bind all of us. So ethics is general and it's universal. The more ethical something is, the more universal it can be applied. And so what do we do when we see how contingent much of our lives is? What do we do with ethics then? And so to make a very long story short, at the end of his major works on contingency, Kuki came uh, up with um, with a, a not a formula, but uh, it's a kind of imperative. It's a kind of an ethical imperative, but it isn't like a rule that we're supposed to to follow as such. It's he, it's rather a kind of opportunity, and he phrased it this way: Never let your encounters pass in vain. Never let your encounters pass in vain. That would mean, for example, that you, if you're confronted with, with somebody who's really mean and nasty and uncivil, if you're confronted with incivilities, you don't simply react immediately and, and fight against them and perhaps defend yourself. Uh, but you pause and, and wait a minute and 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 find a better way to respond to that incivility than just to reject it in the person who is being nasty. This is, of course, not something that Kuki uh, formulates in those terms. It's something that uh, I came up with in, in thinking about this sort of ethical imperative, which has a lot to do with the contingencies of of our life. So. Um, of course, in your studies, you, I'm sure, have read a lot about uh, Kuki as the philosopher of Iki, this supposedly untranslatable term that has to do with uh, aesthetic sensibility and sensitivity. And yes, Kuki does that too, but for me, he's the philosopher of contingency. Um, so... There's the other two, of course, Watsuji and, and Tanabe. So let's see, what can we say about uh, Watsuji? Um, I was most interested, Watsuji is a, a writer of vast, covers vast territory. He has written about primitive Buddhism. He, he wrote uh, about the history of, of ethics in Japan. Uh, but perhaps his most important work came out actually in three volumes, starting in about 1935 to 49, uh, were what he calls ethics, ethics, Rinli Gaku. Now, Rinli is a very old word, Chinese word, but Rinli Gaku is one of these, one of these imports from, from the West, the study of, of, uh, how we live together. And the amazing thing of, about Watsuji for me was um, how he, he took uh, a, an ordinary Japanese word and he, he showed how that word could uh, display his entire philosophy. And that word is the word that translates human being, ningen. Ningen. Uh, so if we look at the two kanji, the two Chinese characters that compose this compound, ningen, we see that the, the first is just a word that roughly refers to humans, individual or in groups or whatever. And the second, this gen, is also, as you know, by itself read aida or between or perhaps an interval or it's read sometimes as ma, something that opens up a, a space. And so the word ningen, Watsuji says, 
tells us an awful lot about what human beings are. They are they are in a sense interbeings, I N T E R beings. They are beings together. We are human by being together. We are essentially together from from the beginning. We are not uh, simply individuals, individual persons. Um, and and this this shows up in the in the very conception of 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 Ningen. So the ethics of Ningen is the ethics of how we actually do and how we should uh, have relation live in relationships with one another. And so that's uh, that's a, a, a fascinating idea to me, and it's. It goes far beyond uh, the usual cliche that uh, Japanese societies, like some other East Asian societies, are are have a, have a lot of group consciousness. Um, that's uh, a very superficial way to understand, I think, a very deep point. So that's um, a kind of entry into the the thought of, of Watsuji Tetsuro. Um, Tanabe. Hajime is more complicated. Um, I have been interested mostly in his later work, starting uh, toward the end of the of the Pacific War, the Second World War, so starting about 1944, and the work he was doing at that time when uh, he was the, the universities actually were being basically uh, shut down. And he had been, um, as I said before, a philosopher who was trained in Japan and also in uh, in Europe. And he was somebody who was interested in in developing a philosophy of um, we could call it of mediation of how we have uh, how we necessarily build social structures which let us negotiate. Um, not only our, our say, commercial business, but our very lives with one another. And so he developed uh, what he called a logic of species. Now, he used the, a biological term here, but he said in the case of, of human beings, each society is a kind of species. Uh, and, a, and it's an interspecies, too. So What's uh, Tanabe is working out all of this, in, all the intricate details of this logic of, of species, um, and part of that is his notion of uh, the nation state as a a kind of um, forum and an authority, which uh, which is the the final voice in how we negotiate and how we mediate uh, our problems. And of course, then if we look, especially look today back at the, the Japanese nation state at the time, um, it was engaged in uh, its own colonialism. And of course, by 1944 in, in World War. And so Watsuji, Watsuji's um, rude awakening was how impotent his logic of species was to deal with the authoritarian power of the Japanese state. And he was seeing his own students being shipped away to other countries to, to fight and lose their lives, supposedly to protect uh, the to, to protect Japan and save Japan and protect the emperor, and and so this was this came as a as a rude awakening, perhaps over over one or two years, but it it showed the as I said again the the kind of impotence of a, of an academic philosophy to meet the political social challenges of the time, and so he underwent. A very deep kind of um, of uh, a very deep kind of conversion, uh, what he calls a 
he drew the word from the from the Greeks, metanoia, a change of heart. And he developed a philosophy that he called metanoesis. Again, using coming up with a new uh, a new version of an old Greek word, and uh, and this uh, metanoetic philosophy uh, showed what he came to experience as the limit of reasoning, the limit of rationality. And so where do we turn then as philosophers if we say that rationality is not going to provide us with everything that we needed, everything that we had hoped for? We don't want to become irrational. Uh, on the other hand, to, to, where, to what do we turn? And, and so Tanabe himself found uh, sustenance in, um, in forms of uh, True Pure Land Buddhism, which, by the way, one of his students introduced him to. Uh, but at the same time, he realized he he couldn't just communicate um, a new version of True Pure Land Buddhism to people who who had no access to that, no familiarity with it. And so he writes this philosophy of metanoetics. Uh, from this point of view, that's a, a change of, of heart. And uh, it's also it also has to do with the the, the way that um, we sometimes need to submit to more than ourselves, and yet uh, obviously a danger in that is submitting to an authoritarian power. And and so Tanabe is somebody who himself is caught between and trying to negotiate. Um, the difference he's teach, he's trying to teach us how, the difference between uh, the, the, give us the space between simply submitting to to things which could turn out to be quite pernicious, quite dangerous on the one hand, and resisting them selfishly from the beginning. So. What's in between those two extremes? That's that's his philosophical problem in in this era, and then I at the end of the war. Uh, so that's what uh, that's kind of a a nutshell of uh, how I understand these three figures. And I have one last very big question um, for you, which is the one that you explored in toward the end of this volume. So uh, from these, from the thoughts of these three philosophers, we can kind of see uh, their shared concern for human relations, for culture, Japanese culture in particular, and for perhaps the position of Japan as a race, as a nation state within this world that was about to be taken over by Western forces. And Somehow, uh, as you also mentioned, Zen Buddhism played a sort of important part in the exploration of Japan's cultural identity, especially uh, around this time period when um, when well, nationalism was at rise and these philosophers were trying to figure out who they were, what they were, and what their purposes was. Um, you also kind of reflected on their discussion about the relationship between human and nature. So what, I, I guess, to uh, integrate the philosophy of these three figures and, of course, your own reflections, what do you see as um, that can be... Mm, let me rephrase that. What do you think can be said about their exploration of human nature and nature? And then how does that uh, situate within the context of their search for modernity in the 1930s, 40s in Japan? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a very big question with a lot of angles to it. 
And so I'll, I'll just make a brief comment about the last part first, the, 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 the backdrop uh, of modernity, um, which comes about uh, through the confrontation with Western powers. Basically, um, one of the, and to remind uh, us all of um, one of the controversial angles of some of the Japanese philosophers, particularly the so-called Kyoto School and, and some other intellectuals. As, as you know, in the early 1940s, uh, there were a number of symposia on the, on the question of modernity and uh, overcoming modernity. And uh, these um, discussions have been wonderfully translated into English recently by Richard Talakman. Um And Nishida himself, nor uh, any of the other three that we've talked about so far, participated in these discussions, but uh, students of Nishida did, in particular uh, Nishitani uh, Keiji. Um, and if you read these discussions, they're very wide ranging and there are, there are nationalists promoting, uh, the superiority of, of the Japanese, um, racially, biologically, uh, literally. And there are people who are on the opposite side. Shimomura Teitaru was one of the, on the opposite side. Um, but very, you see very little discussion of what I think the biggest issue is, and that is colonization. Of course, Japan is engaged in its own colonizing. I mean, it started colonizing Korea and at the beginning of the 1900s, and then you saw what after Manchuria and Japan and Manchuria and uh, say the, the Philippines, what's now Vietnam. It's in the process of colonizing. And the, these intellectual figures know this. They don't know as much as, um, certainly as much as we know today about it. But modernization is also about colonization, I think. And, uh, and there are many ways of colonizing. There's, um, there's cultural colonization. There's cultural nationalism as as well as military uh, nationalism and so the, the cultural nationalism in Japan is one aspect of Zen Buddhism certainly not the the only aspect but it begins in the late 1800s um, after say Japan is invited to uh, present its its culture at uh, the World's Fair, the World Parliament of Religions. This is a parliament of religions. A parliament, a parliament is a ruling house. A parliament is an idea where uh, these these uh, different elements can come together and uh, compete, as it were, show their best and. Uh, in the world of Parliament of Religions, we have a view of religion as a way of salvation, and we have a number of Western religions, Christian religions among them, um, for whom each, of which each says, we are the only true religion. We are the only way of salvation. And so the the, the Buddhists and the Zen Buddhists, Shakusoin and others who come to the World um, Parliament of Religions, uh, are engaged, uh, engaging with, with their audiences in this kind of, of venue. And they are, um, in a certain sense, forced to be missioners, missionaries, um, not really proselytizing or or forcing conversions as such, but, but presenting what is different and what is best about their so-called religion. The whole notion of religion, of course, is only as shukyo, 
um, an old word given new meaning in the 1870s. Uh, that's a, a modern European concept in Japan, shukyo. So this is uh, this is sort of the backdrop of um, uh, of what was going on between Zen institutions and the the challenge of cultural nationalism. It was seen as a kind of challenge at the time. How best to let others know who and what we are and were. Now, what does that have to do with human nature? Well, there's the part, first, I suppose, has to do with human nature in that human beings are, are competitive and, um, and can engage in forms of nationalism. But then practice itself in all of its different forms through the centuries can be uh, seen as, in another phrase, it can be encapsulated in another phrase that uh, Nishitani Keiji used a lot. And that is the phrase Koji Kyumei, or self-investigation. So he presented Zen as a way to investigate oneself in all of the facets of life, not just as an individual, um, but in, in a life which which touches and is touched by all others, to investigate that deeply through meditative practices. And that's what Zen is for Nishitani Keiji, and that was the most pertinent, the most relevant meaning of Zen Buddhism for, for me personally, this self-investigation. What Nishitani did was he related this koji kume as a form of self-investigation, self-examination, to to its analogs in in Western philosophy, starting with Socrates, who said the unexamined life is not worth living, or Saint Augustine, or Pascal, or or Descartes, uh, who were also engaged in their own ways of self-investigation, and this is something that is across the board human. It is a, a human in a, in a global activity. And so that's, um, that's I, I think, a, a deeper root of, uh, of Zen Buddhism um, that presents its, its uh, humanizing, I think, a little differently than the cultural nationalism part. Now, one last word, and that is that... Um, Recently, I'm, I'm not sure why, but I or how it happened, but I've become very interested in the non-human, in other animals, and in nature, because of course we're faced with uh, enormous and enormous ecological crisis today, and every philosopher has to deal with that as well. Um, and uh, it's curious to me that the word nature. Today in Japanese as well, shizen, uh, typically means what is non-human. Nature is the mountains and the grass and the rivers and the trees and, and other animals, but not really the human. We are outside of that or above it or separate from it. And so what is the relation between the human and the non-human or human and nature? I think this is a kind of dichotomy, which is uh, quite, it can be quite dangerous. So what I have learned uh, through um, my engagement with Japanese philosophy and with anthropologists and with people who study animal behavior is that um, human beings have been uh, have affected nature for eons, for millennia. Uh, it isn't the case, as we're told with the so-called Anthropocene era, that only now is nature no longer to, to uh, go on as it is. It's affected by human beings. Nature has always been affected by human beings and other animals as long as they've been around. And so to, to sum it up for me, what I've learned is that 
is ways of expressing that we are part and parcel of nature and nature is part and parcel of us. And I think that has a, a tremendous relevance for, um, for dealing with the ecological crisis that, that we face today. That's very illuminating and certainly leaves a lot for us to, to think about and to read about. Um, well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for this very enlightening conversation. Thank you. It's been, uh, I've enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Me too. Um, listeners, to learn more about early modern Japanese philosophy and beyond, make sure you check out this series, Japanese Philosophy in the Making by Dr. John Murado. I should also mention that this series is edited by our um, other wonderful co-host, Dr. Takeshi Morisato. This is Jingyi from New Books in Japanese Studies. Uh, stay tuned for our next episode. Until then, goodbye.